Welcome to another episode of APIs You Won't Hate. Today we're talking about responsible deprecation, uh, how to handle dropping both properties from your API endpoints as well as API endpoints themselves, um, and all of the mystery and magic surrounding how to responsibly remove APIs from production. Um, as always, I'm Matt, and I'm joined here with Phil and Mike. Guys, how's it going? Hey, not bad. What's up? Yeah, I'm hanging in. In the depths of winter here, but we'll get through. Yeah, like it, it dropped uh, two to four inches of snow in Nashville over the week, which is incredibly unlike everything we've ever seen. And then we're getting another two to four inches tonight. So it's it's uh it's pretty interesting. Oof. Yeah, I don't so, really understand what's going on yeah. with the world when Texas, um, Austin, Texas, all my colleagues over there at Stoplight are completely snowed in and have no power, but like Poland's pretty fine. I don't really understand the world where that's happening. <laughs> I mean. There's, there's a lot to unpack there, as I've been reading over these last couple days, but suffice it to say, climate change is real. So anyways, we are talking responsible deprecation, things like how to remove API endpoints from production. Um, if you're a smaller shop, a smaller one-person shop, you know, if you have an API and you're kind of doing it yourself, it's kind of easy to handle. It's not that hard to remember which APIs you've removed, but like... If you're at a company like, let's say, Stripe or, <clears throat> excuse me, Google or something like that, like, what is the responsible way to remove an API from production in a, a massive global context like those companies are without breaking things? Yeah, totally. And, and I want to add kind of a little bit more context around this, too, for uh, the, the people of the world who might have um, experiences similar to mine where I'm largely consuming uh, APIs as an end user developer. Um, from from the external perspective too, a lot of the time that may look like um, a feature going away or a feature changing significantly in a way that can sort of seem painful, right? Like you may, um, from, from the release perspective of developer, it may sound like something I've been using is going away. And usually, hopefully, if, that's, if it's done uh, well, there's like a timeline on that and you may get 30 or 60 or 90 days notice or something like that before the change happens. Uh, and that's part of why I wanted to talk to you guys about this is kind of to pick your brains about uh, things you've seen, good, bad, and otherwise with deprecation, with features going away, and maybe even to an extent new features being rolled out. What's what's the best way to do that and to communicate that with the people uh, who, who need to hear about yeah, it? Yeah, there's, there's so many ways of doing it, um, all of which kind of solve a piece of the puzzle and, and work in different contexts. But um, probably something to add first is that people might be listening to this thinking, like, why would you take an endpoint away? Why would you take features away? You only ever add to an API. Um, and those people might be big fans or proponents of kind of global versioning where you have version one of the entire API and then version two of the entire API. And, you know, that has a lot of a lot of pros and cons itself. Um, and, and without really getting into why global versioning, it can be a massive time suck and just push all of the hard work onto your clients. Um, even if you are adding version two, then at some point you have to deprecate version one and take that away. Because even if you want to support, you know, two major versions, if you release version three or version four, you don't want to support all of those APIs all at the same time forever. So you will at some point have to figure out how to turn off some of those older versions, even if you aren't using something like Evolution, where you might take away just one endpoint or take away some some properties that aren't being used anymore. Um, and yeah, I think some of the most common ways of doing it, like if you signed up for an API key with, with most of these big APIs, right? Like you sign up for OAuth credentials 
And, and when you sign up, you use your user account. If it's Facebook, Facebook, you have to upload a passport. So they know who you are <laughs> um, and, and they can email you about stuff. So um, I've noticed I'm getting a lot of emails from GitHub right now that we are using a form of authentication that is going away at some point. I've been getting those emails for about a year, um, <laughs> which suggests that A, GitHub are doing a great job of kind of telegraphing their changes a long way off and B, we're not doing a very good job of keeping up to date with them. Um, but at some point that will get turned off. And, and if we've, we've been ignoring them for a year, then that's entirely on us. But emails are a pretty common thing when it's uh, uh, authenticated API. Um, putting things in docs is pretty useful. You can just put this is deprecated and open API supports that. You just put deprecated true on the operation. and So anyone who's coming to it new knows not to look at that. But people aren't going back to your docs all the time. So if they've in, integrated with your API a year ago or three years ago, they're not going to sit there, hit and refresh, you know, to come back and have a look. So you've also got to try and work out how to how to get in touch with people in, in, a, in a way that they'll know about. And a way that I quite like that's quite new in HTTP world, HTTP world, is um, the sunset header. And even newer than that, the deprecation header. And we can talk about them a little bit. But... Um, the general idea is that you just kind of put into the message like, hey, here's your response, but by the way, it's deprecated. You should do something about that. Um, and then you can have tooling that automatically notices that that, that thing's about to go away. And that, that's something I'm, I'm a big fan of, as well as emailing when possible and documenting when possible, you know, letting them know in the actual message so it can't really be missed. It's pretty helpful. Yeah, so uh, does that sunset header or the deprecation header allow for any way to tell end users that the deprecation is coming, or are those typically used once it's already deprecated? Yeah, the deprecation header, um, yeah, so sunset and deprecation are subtly different in in, um, in what they mean. Uh, deprecation means like this is or has been deprecated. You can either put deprecation true, and it just means this has been deprecated now. Or you can put a date, which will mean if it's in the future, like this will be deprecated on this date. Or if it's in the past, then this was deprecated then. Um, and, and sometimes dates are useful if you work at a company that is really kind of rigid and on top of their deployments and on top of hitting their deadlines. You know, you want to give someone clear warning. Um, but it can also just be slightly confusing because you say like, oh, we're going to deprecate this next week because we think we'll have it replaced or next month or next year whatever and then like scope creep happens or you miss your deadline and it says it's been deprecated on a specific date but it hasn't been and why did you bother doing that so true true is you know simple and then sunset is more this is going away um because right deprecation doesn't mean removal deprecation means like don't use this anymore because it might be removed at some point and sunset is how you do that so Sunset doesn't require deprecation first. Um, it it they can they can either they can be used separately or together, right? But sunset means like after the date in this header, this probably won't work anymore. This should be considered a production issue if the date is you know now or in the past. Like you should fucking panic and motivate yourself to do something about this. Whereas a deprecation, especially if it's in the future or recent past, doesn't really matter all that much. Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, no doubt those two t 
types of headers can be confusing, um, but they they serve worthwhile purposes, and there's definitely good reason to use each. And, and particularly because they're both sort of relatively new, you might see one or both used uh, uh, inconsistently across APIs that you're consuming, um, or even even in ways that might not be recommended. Um, it's probably also worth talking about for a minute, like maybe some of the the business decision type drivers that would cause an API to go away. Because uh, it might not just be, hey, we've moved in a different direction, but oftentimes the companies that are offering these analytics, uh, offering these APIs, have analytics around what's being used in their APIs and what's causing them trouble, what's causing support tickets, that sort of a thing. Um, I know, for example, Stripe is really good about providing uh, advance notice that things are going away, and usually they give a decent explanation of, hey, uh, you know, we're changing this API uh, in a year and a half, even sometimes, and here's what you need to know. A lot of the time, in in the case of Stripe, it might have to do with regulatory changes or important security updates that are coming, uh, and they do a really good job of of setting out comms along the way, saying like, we're a year and a half out. Here's what you need to know. Prepare for this. It's going to take a lot of work, and then you'll get a message every three months until a year out and, you know, every month from there on. And then as it gets closer, you get more and more um, notification that changes are coming and that you need to pay attention. Um, I think the best providers also know when you've made the needed changes, right? Like they know when you've started consuming the new API or when you've stopped using the broken, well, they're the, sorry, not broken, soon to be uh, sunset and deprecated one. Uh, and, and that obviously is a sign of a pretty mature product. Um, and isn't a luxury that we all will always have, especially for things that are, you know, particularly minor use cases. Yeah, yeah Stripe I mean, I are think... really on. Oh, go ahead, Phil. I'm always talking, Matt. You go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just, you know, like, along with Stripe, like, Plaid is another pretty big, pretty big API provider in the fintech world. And obviously, you know, regulatory um, rules and guidelines are constantly changing, especially around... Uh, consumer credit cards, which is and bank accounts, which is what Plaid really does a great job of doing. Um, but then also, I think you know it comes down to a lot of APIs, especially like in a startup world, were built by maybe one or two people. They smashed it all together really fast so they could get the product to market to validate their idea, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this actually works. This actually is making us money. But we totally glued parts a b and d together left out c and so i think that's a a huge determination of why they should deprecate the let's call it v1 api and start moving towards the v2 apis after a while you know you have better engineers around you have better thought processes you may have introduced like open api or something like that and now you want to kind of give your consumers a much better end product too yeah, that is a really important point. I think something that's often ignored from the conversations around versioning and deprecation, as the two things are obviously pretty intertwined, um, is that regardless of how you technically decide to alert consumers of your deprecations and your changes, you have to make sure that those changes are actually worthwhile um, and not just like, we changed our naming conventions, we did this thing, we have switched from bear a token to jwt for some reason like every time that you um make the consumer do something that doesn't actually add any value to them they're they're getting more annoyed with you with the api provider right and so the reasons for doing stuff as long as you make it clear um makes sense like if you're switching authentication strategy because there are security issues with the old one brilliant that communicate that right um 
if you're switching from um, kind of one uh, domain model to another because you found out that people were having to make a hundred requests to, to you know, solve a certain workflow, then it totally makes sense to to add some more resources that handle that that workflow better. Or the other way around, if, if you know people are fetching these giant resources and it's really hard to compute all the data they need, and it's it's causing instability across your platform because these reports are being generated on the fly or whatever, um, then it totally makes sense to switch to a different thing, which would be much quicker and people will enjoy the speed. Uh, but you have to be able to communicate the actual benefits they'll get um, by investing time, effort and money in, in switching their API. Because once an integration is done, people generally expect it to continue to work unless there's a really good reason why it has to break. Um, and, and that reason shouldn't just be well, we couldn't figure out API evolution, so we've just made a V2 API and you should go figure out what's changed because, I don't know, it's a major version, everything's different now, fuck you. <laughs> Which is what a lot of people do. That's not not very helpful. <laughs> yeah, I think this is one of those opportunities too where um, some some product teams can forget that they have the advantage of having people who are listening and people who are communicating with them that are private, prior users. Um, I've seen some really interesting discussions about APIs changing uh, on GitHub, right? Long before the change is actually in place, uh, developers will put out an issue or a pull request or something that says, hey, this is what we're thinking about doing. Here's the reasons why, and here's all the long history and all the related issues if you want to go spelunking. Uh, and that may show up in the release notes for a, for an API change that says like, hey, in the future, this is going to change. Please read this if you use X, Y, and Z feature. Uh, and oftentimes that process doesn't end up being as straightforward as you think, right? Like they, they might announce that they're thinking about a change uh, and that change gets pushed back and back and back because of discussions happening on the issue. But that's, it, it should be reminded that that's a thing that's actually really productive, right? By consulting the people who are using your API and really getting feedback from them on what changes are happening and why you prevent yourself from making breaking changes that uh, ruin your perception with the developer community that's using your thing, uh, that cause heartache for your internal team, for your support team, uh, and cause churn in customers and things like that. So often if you're in a position to be able to, uh, communicate as well as listen, you can set yourself up for uh, a little less pain here and there. Um, and, and it's probably worth mentioning too, that sometimes that deadline that you put out for a release needs to change and it's better that it changes than you sort of dig your heels into the ground and uh, make some damaging choices. Yeah. Well, the other thing too is um, like if you're willing to commu- – like let's say you're consuming an API and you're willing to talk to them and be open about like the their changes coming out. And they may give you beta access before the actual API release and take your feedback into account as they're deprecating and removing certain features. Um as a way to kind of understand better what the users are using too. So like if you're just kind to people, if you're just nice to people, which is really hard on the internet, I know I watch Phil all the time, struggle with it. Um, you can, you can, you might be able to get, you know, like some, I don't want to call it privileged access, but um, companies may be more willing to work with you on breaking changes. Um, as long as it's not like too much of a, of a ask, if that makes sense. Yeah, companies usually want feedback on how stuff sure. works, right? Like, and instead of just kind of internally testing it, if they can get some early adopters, that's great. Um, things like feature flags work just as well on an API as they do anywhere else, right? You you can you can easily um, flag off new experimental API endpoints, right? And you can kind of um, 
especially if they're using something like OAuth or you know they they have credentials, then you know who they are. You can easily flag them off and say like this um, this token belongs to this user. You already have that logic, and this user belongs to this group of people who are allowed to access this feature. Um, whatever feature flag implementation you've got, give it to those people, get feedback on that, or just shove it up there and, and see who notices and get feedback from those people. But um, yeah, getting feedback on, on how things work before you kind of make it generally available is, is really powerful. Otherwise, you end up on version 3 and then version 4 and then version 5 and then version 6 because you keep getting more feedback. You're like, oh yeah, crap. Well, this is in production, so let's just make another version and I'm sure the next one will be right. And then, oh crap, we got more feedback. Well, I'm sure the next one will be right. <laughs> yeah, and that relationship is beneficial in both directions, too. Uh, as as the, the team building the API, you're getting valuable feedback that can save you a lot of time. And as the, uh, let's call them beta users of, of sort of flagged, feature flagged uh, API functions, you're uh, able to provide feedback that uh, inevitably will help whatever it is you're building. Uh, and also putting yourself in a place of trust where you may eventually be able to ask for features or ask for things being catered to your needs uh, because uh, pr- providing a certain amount of valuable feedback sort of makes you an insider eventually anyway. And becoming that kind of trusted relationship on both sides is really, really useful. Yeah. So, uh, all right, here, here, here's the hypothetical for you. What I'm curious is, concretely, let's say the three of us had a product. We were building an API for whatever it may be. It um, do, doesn't really matter. Uh, and we've, we've come together, put our heads together, and decided that we have this feature that is, um, we put out into the world years ago, and it no longer deserves to be there. Uh, we're, we're wasting resources on it, and we don't think it's useful. What's the process you would take from there to start communicating that and put it put it together into a plan to deprecate it? Uh, first thing I would do is update my documentation to stop any new users coming in. Um, uh, maybe, well, maybe the first thing I'd do is make sure I have some sort of uh, analytics on it, something like New Relic, some, something that helps me know how many people are using that endpoint, right? Some sort of, like, some sort of chart I can make over time of, of how much usage... Um, how many requests are going to this endpoint. So if you can't track a problem, you can't fix it, right? So step one, track it. Step two, uh, I would probably throw something in the documentation that says, hey, this is going away. The new users won't start using it. So that that line should either be flat or go down. Um, Then I, if I had their emails, would email people out being like, hey, this is going away on this date. Here's a blog post that explains why. and then if I was using deprecation or sunset headers, I would, you know, put that date in ahead of time. Uh, the reason you might not use deprecation at the moment is because that header is still in draft. It's going through the IETF, um, you know, process and will eventually become a standard. But for now, sunset is standard and has a bit more tooling. So maybe you, you choose to still use sunset. Um, but either way, whatever header you use, you can put in a link that can be to another endpoint. It could be a link to documentation it could be a link to a blog post so that blog post i've already written i would put a link to that in in the sunset header um so that people who see the deprecation messages can can go and have a look and learn more um and then i would wait and you know see how how the usage of that is going um and if usage isn't dropping i would you know try and try and figure out uh, who I could reach out to. Um, if there are a couple of clients that are still still using it, then you know I would go and approach them if possible. Um, 
and yeah, if I was if I was releasing SDKs, I would make sure that my SDKs um, were like warning people as well, um, and whether that's through generically my SDKs looking for the sunset header, or whether that's specifically my you know a new version of my SDKs have been built that that uses some sort of language level deprecation warning like Java, you use the deprecated annotation, and then like you'll get Java errors saying you know this method is gone. Um, and just keep doing anything along those lines I could until until enough people aren't using the thing that I can just turn it off. Because there will always be some people. There'll be somebody on a on an old version of the iOS app that refuses to update, and and their app will break, and then they'll update, and then it'll be fine. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Th- those are all. Um, I think that that follows more or less what I would expect. I think some of the things you said too apply tactically uh, throughout the process, like being able to measure that the, the email that you sent out to let people know that things are going to be deprecated, that that is actually landing and people are reading that is important. Uh, and you're probably going to want to track things like here's the traffic to those blog posts that we link to, to see how those are sort of going up and down, because those are probably uh, also leading indicators that, that people are starting to do the work to um, wind down use of those APIs. Um, and obviously the softer touch things are keeping an ear to the ground for Twitter, Reddit, GitHub, wherever you talk to your users, maybe Stack Overflow, uh, and, and see if they have questions or concerns, or if anyone's lighting their hair on fire, panicking about what's going on, you can start to manage those processes as well. Yeah, there, there are some approaches that I know people have tried to use, like, um, you know, sometimes things break because somebody refuses to refresh their JavaScript single page application. They've got some React app that's just been trucking along on the same browser um, browser session for, you know, a year somehow or whatever. They've got caffeine running and they don't turn it off. Um, <laughs> and so when you have things like that, if you, uh, people have said like, oh, if you've got a sunset date coming in on a response that's in the past, maybe you should refresh the page. Things like that. Um, just to try and get the newest version before it vanishes. But yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of things you can try. Um, would you like to hear how to not do it? If, if anyone, uh, or does anyone have any <laughs> No, let's do it. Ideas? Let's hear the horror stories. So there's a lot of times that stuff gets turned off without warnings, deprecations, anything useful, any, an email, anything, no letter posted to your house. Um, often it's Facebook. They just turn shit off because they feel like it. Um, Facebook did something really weird quite recently that just angered me conceptually um, and just literally and physically um, in every way. They, uh, they have Instagram used to have like an Oembed API. Oembed is um, like a special kind of it's kind of like an API in a way. Um, you hit a certain URL. Um, actually, yeah, it is an API. They have like a, an endpoint that's called Oembed, and you pass in a URL, and it will re- re- return um, a JSON payload with all sorts of metadata about that thing like some HTML embed code and some other kind of, you know, stuff so that when you are um, trying to embed resources from another website into your website, it has a representation. That's a very weird description. Basically, if you want to embed Instagram images in your cycling blog, then you can use Oembed to do that. Um, And so I had... uh, there's like this amazing Oembed plugin where you just put the URL to the Instagram picture in your markdown and then it goes, oh, that's an Instagram URL. I know what that is. Hits the Oembed API, brings back that HTML and embeds it in there so that I don't have to go through and click like copy embed code, copy embed code, copy embed code every single time I want to show off my holiday snaps. So 
that was an open public API that worked fine and free. You didn't need an account. You just, you just used it and it was fine. And then Facebook want to own all your data all the time and basically decided they were going to make a brand new Facebook O-Embed, not the Instagram O-Embed, but a brand new Facebook Graph API one. Um, and that required an access token, which is really weird and kind of breaks the whole concept of, of, open API, uh, of, uh, of O-Embed. Um, but to do that, you need a Facebook account and that has to be verified. And that means you have to upload your fucking passport. Um, and then they rejected my passport for some reason. And I've deleted my Facebook account a long time ago. So I was like trying to get my like developer Facebook account approved. And then that didn't work. And it was just all this nonsense. And what really annoyed me about the deprecation process of that was there wasn't one. Um, on their documentation, uh, on their API documentation, it said, um, the document, uh, the endpoints documented on this page will be deprecated on October 24th, 2020 and return error code 400. Um, please use this other one instead. There's two things wrong with that. The first one is that I was using it. I was using it on, um, October like 15th or whatever it was like a well ahead of the day that it was meant to get uh, deprecated. I was using it ahead of the deprecation date and it was already not working. Right. So that's rude. And there was no communication apart from this documentation page, which is also rude. But deprecation means warning people that it's about to go away. Deprecation doesn't mean suddenly jamming error code 400 into everything, because (laughs) that's not how status code works. Good old Facebook, they don't understand how status codes work. They usually just do 200 okay for everything, and now they're doing 400 on something that actually worked. So all of these generic tools that we're expecting to hit an endpoint, get some JSON back, and then, you know, embed the HTML into people's blog posts or whatever else, um, it started breaking... Oh, God. Phone call. Hang on. My dad's got a very old phone and it's ringing. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Nice. Um... Nice. Yeah, so instead of instead of getting the HTML back and getting a 200 okay and being like, fantastic, that worked fine, all the builds started breaking. Jesus Christ. Hang on. <laughs> How many phones have we got in the back? <laughs> this is amazing. Like, you can't um, pay for this level of entertainment. This is just great quality uh, podcasting, yeah. Uh, yeah, so instead of, instead of the thing actually working, you get your JSON back and it says 200 okay, you get the JSON back and it says 400, so every single generic HTTP tooling just assumes that it's completely broken, as it should. Um, so that breaks the builds and, and my blog wouldn't deploy, um, and I'm sure somewhere somebody had a much bigger problem than their cycling blog not deploying for a little while, but like, that sort of, that sort of idiocy is kind of how to not go about deprecations. You don't just write something on your documentation and hope people see it. You don't pick a date and then just do it ahead of time, and you don't just break it without without any actual other sort of warning. You know what I mean? That That's just the worst rollout of a deprecation. Yeah, super messy. I can understand there's probably some challenges with a, something like an OEmbed API where uh, you might not even know how to contact all of the people using it, but it's it's easy to argue that they took like the probably worst path to deprecating that especially the the part where they uh killed it days before it was supposed to be you know without without any warning about that that's a lot that that's like 
compounding challenges right. there. And uh, you could imagine they probably got a lot of feedback about that. And and you run into a weird problem with companies like Facebook where there's this notion of like, yeah, but is this a problem on Facebook scale? Or is it like, you know, only a million users, <laughs> yeah. which sounds pretty wild Absolutely. to most people. They also failed to make sure this is beneficial to your consumers argument. Um, and and all they're doing is making sure that, you know, if you if you had an Instagram account but didn't necessarily have a Facebook account or whatever, um, then tough, you're screwed. You have to go and get a Facebook account. So this is done purely for conversion, right? They just want more people to have more data. They just want more passports uploaded. They don't, there's no other benefit to this. There's no security angle. They're, they're just mining data. <laughs> so yeah. as well as, as, well as doing a messy Nasty. rollout, they also don't have any particularly good reason for doing it apart from just money. So um, yeah, this isn't like the worst in the world. It's just the kind of the messiest I've seen. Often people just turn things off. Um, Strava have done a few where they're just like, ah, I used to be able to do this on the API, but you know, people kept making competing products, so we just turned it off. Um, Twitter have done that a bunch. Like, oh, you can't use this to make a Twitter client anymore. Um, Facebook have done it because, oh, Cambridge Analytica was like getting way too much data out of, out of our API, and we pretended we didn't notice, so we've turned this API off so that other people can't do it. Um, things like that. Stuff stuff does just get turned off on a whim sometimes. And that's when you need to make sure that you've got circuit breakers and, and redundancies built into your application so that you're not just assuming it's always up because if it vanishes overnight, then... Ah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's bad. We've probably talked about some of the tooling too that you you probably noticed with things breaking in that case because I'd imagine you have a statically generated site, but uh, it's also very good to be able to have things set up to shout at you when uh, changes that don't completely break your site are are happening there, um, which I think we've probably talked about on past podcasts. Uh, do, do you guys have any episodes of or sorry any any episodes any examples of uh, other rollouts that have gone poorly? Mm. Not off the top of my head. This was something yeah. I, I meant to look up. It's one of those things you just see. You see something come by on Twitter, and everyone's like, "Oh shit!" And everyone just starts laughing. And then, and then I always feel like I should put those in a list somewhere of people what done messed up. Right. But yeah, there's, there's just a lot of them. Honestly, people do it all the time. People, I mean, most companies that are just getting the hang of APIs, you know, like we often think about them. As, as being around for a long time, kind of the API first mentality being around since 2007 or whatever it is, something. Um, and kind of, they're, they're both very new to some companies and, and something that companies should be quite experienced with at the same time somehow. Um, but you, you get companies that are kind of just getting into it and, and they're really just in love with lockstep deployments. You know, they're like, it doesn't really matter if we massively rewrite this whole API and change everything because we'll push a deployment and we'll update the iOS app and we'll update the web app all at the same time and it will be fine. And then that never works, ever. <laughs> and if there's any other systems using it, then, then that's a problem. Um, oh, one, one brilliant example from WeWork actually of a deprecation that went poorly. Um, deprecating something for 30 days and then looking to see if it was being used in the last 30 days. Um, but some months have 31 days and some scripts run monthly. <laughs> oh boy. So I, think, I think the script runs at like 
midnight on the first of the month or whatever it is because all of the all of the people's key cards all of the people's memberships and registrations would start on the first of the month um, and this endpoint was only ever being used as part of that monthly cron script that would happen on the first of the month and then so somebody somebody on the 31st <laughs> checks to see if that's been used recently and goes ah no one's used it in a month let's get rid of that um, and then the the very next day <laughs> everything just completely shits um, yeah don't don't do that <laughs> yeah, well intentioned, but yeah. definitely uh, for for getting a real real problem with reality yeah. there. Uh, I do have one example of of a deprecation that went well, or, or maybe about as well as it could for something that's super high impact. Um, and this is this is um, it's actually for a library rather than sort of a traditional API. But uh, at, at one point on the internet, uh, just about every major web application was using a JavaScript um, library for. Uh, asynchronous HTTP uh, requests, AJAX requests, and it was called Request. Uh, and starting on March 30th, 2019, they announced that uh, they were going to deprecate Request entirely. Uh, so the whole library was no longer essentially going to be changed, updated, maintained. Uh, and I'll, I'll drop a link to this in, in the notes for the show here. But uh, they, they started that initial post with like a literal history of the Request project and how it started. Uh, how it grew, all these other things, and, and made a case for like, and now it's time to move on because there are other things that do this a lot better, uh, and it doesn't make sense to keep maintaining this library. And as we record this now, uh, it's been, like I said, almost two years since March 30th, 2019. There are literally thousands of comments on this Git uh, issue, GitHub issue, talking about it. Uh, actually, I guess only 360 comments, lots of uh, related pull requests, and thousands and thousands of like reactions to comments on it. Um, and it's a really great example of clear communication, uh, support from the community, and so you'll even see some of the growing pains in the comments in there that are related to people making changes to it. But I think maybe the most interesting thing is a, is a feature of GitHub where if things are public, you can see all of the pull requests and issues that are related to this issue. And there are just dozens and dozens and dozens where you can see uh, people looking at making these changes, linking to the issue, uh, and, and really creating like almost a graph of uh, people affected by this change. And it's pretty gigantic. Uh, and as, as far as I can tell, this hasn't broken the internet uh, and, and was definitely one of those things that had the potential to. Uh, so it's a really interesting thing to check out. And I'll link to that uh, because I think it's one of those exemplars that, that we should be talking about more. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, not, check the link in there. Yeah, it's, it's not API specific, but moment.js has also done a really good job of deprecating their whole library. And, um, you know, Moment is such a big, well-used, well-tested library for doing date-time things in JavaScript, but eventually they were like, you know, this library's kind of outgrown itself. Here is why we're kind of stepping back, and here's your replacements for Moment. Um, so I think, like, something like that is probably one of the best things you can do if you're going to deprecate an API is maybe give a little bit of explanation why so people aren't just like you're taking away my my endpoints and then also make sure you suggest hey you know a point endpoint a is going down but we also have b c d and e are all api endpoints that can um cover your needs and help you out the best in multiple different ways and it's kind of on you to figure out the best way but here's we're going a little bit above and beyond just to help you out Wow, I had no idea they deprecated. That's interesting. It looks like this all happened at the end of last year. 
uh, yeah, that's that's a massive library, and their their API is really complex. Um, probably for good reason that they're deprecating it because it was getting very heavy. But uh, yeah, that that team does a really great job of communication through and through. Yeah, and I mean, like if you're doing this API world, I know I think what both Ruby and at least Laravel has middleware you can shove into your API stack and set the sunset header and kind of just set it in not forget it, but you can at least kind of automate this whole process. And so that way, when you're making, when you're responding to a request, if you know the API is going down, the sunset header is automatically there. And then it kind of frees you of that burden a little bit and kind of puts the onus back onto the consumer to say, hey, mm. um, here's your notice. You have 90 days or whatever, and we want to help you out, but you've got to at least kind of meet us halfway. Yeah, this this is something I've um, been. I, I recently I wrote an article for Stoplight um, about uh, deprecating API endpoints, right? Like it, very similar to the topics here, um, but a bit more hands-on. Actually, how that will work, and I'll make sure we've got a link in the show notes there. Um, and yeah, there, there's kind of two main places that HTTP-based API people uh, might want to put in a deprecation. Um, and one of those places might be OpenAPI um, to help update your documentation if you're using OpenAPI. Um, and another place might be the code, where either you're using one of these uh, convenient middleware libraries um, or you're literally just adding a header yourself, like you just response.headers, you know, dot deprecation equals. Um, however you're setting that header and however you're doing it in documentation, the whole point of OpenAPI that we've been trying to get, get sorted out for a really long time it is that instead of having two different sources of truth, so they're having all of your validation rules in OpenAPI and then copying all of your validation rules again over to the actual API, you can just use um, uh, request validation middlewares that look at OpenAPI and say, oh, I already know how to validate this incoming request. You don't have to write code for that. And in the exact same way, I want, I want to move away from the idea of kind of uh, request validation uh, middlewares and just like general validation middlewares, like general open API middlewares, where as well as just saying like, is this request correct? And is the response coming back correct? Um, but like, should we, is there anything else we should put in the, in the response? Um, uh, should we put a deprecation notice in there? Should we put a sunset notice in there? Because if, if the information is available in open API already, there's no reason why you should have to duplicate that information and potentially have those two dates disagreeing with each other um, in, in, in the code. Um, so yeah, again, I think there's, there's room for tooling to help join up open API and what people are actually writing for code. Cause then it's really similar to what GraphQL and GRPC do. Um, GRPC and GraphQL both cover property level deprecations, but they don't really cover like endpoint or, or method or mutation or query or whatever you call it. They don't cover the, the deprecation of that entire thing. If you want to deprecate an entire mutation or an entire query, you have to, in, in um, GraphQL, you have to deprecate all of the properties and then people kind of get the hint that the whole thing's gone, right? Um, so that, that's a little different there. Um, but, but they don't have two different places that you do it. You, you, whatever GraphQL system you're using, you, you put in the type um, that that is being deprecated. Um, and then if you are rendering documentation, it's there. And if you are using code, it will probably give you a warning. So they've already done the gluing up. And it just means that the OpenAPI community has just a little bit of work to do to, to glue up those things. And then 
And then, yeah, you've got the, the endpoint level deprecations just sorted straight off the bat. Um, uh, and there are ways that you could get the property deprecations sorted out, um, like putting them into SDK generators and things like that as well, you know. Yeah, always good to see when the tooling can remove a little bit of redundancy and take away some of that everyone does it their own way uh, feeling, which which can really slow down development across the board. Yeah, and then maybe next time Facebook are looking at like, oh, how do we deprecate something in HTTP? They won't just randomly start chucking a 400 status code in there and break everything. They'll be like, oh, there's this convenient tool we could use that does it a sensible way based on standards. <laughs> yeah, maybe don't hold your breath on that one, but it's Sometimes it's hopeful. I like to dream. Sometimes. I mean, maybe one day Facebook will return a 400 bad request with a status body of everything's good. And then yeah, the whole I've... world will just flip upside down. <laughs> you know how there's so many people out there that are just like, status codes don't matter. It, it, you know, it, it doesn't matter at all. There's no reason why you should ever change your status codes. Um, I feel like either everyone at Facebook is that um, or, the, or the decision makers, maybe. And like, there's not a single person that's gone actually those conventions matter <laughs> for, for, and here are the reasons why like it helps with caching it helps with uh, uh, monitoring software it helps with anything that was expecting the convention of http to be respected um but uh, yeah if you say 200 when there's an error and you say 400 when things are fine then nothing's gonna work ever weird Anyway, it's weird how that how that works. And then, of course, you, know, you break trust with your users, too, which ultimately uh, the kind of put a bow on this whole thing is deprecating endpoints, doing the right status codes, handling the, the HTTP verbs. There's an extra T there. Um, correctly, all is is in the name of developing a sense of trust with your consumers. So that way, when you do deprecate an endpoint, no one is thinking it's out of malice or spite but because you're doing the best thing for your 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 business or your your api whatever it is um so ultimately at the end of the day if you're thinking about picking an endpoint you want to make sure you're doing it thoughtfully insightfully um and intentionally as well so that way when the time does come to deprecate an endpoint you don't have angry users up in your twitter dms but instead you have people already migrating to the new endpoints and you can go ahead and safely turn those old API endpoints off. So I think that kind of wraps everything up for us today. Uh, any last thoughts we want to get out there, guys? You got anything, Mike? No, that's about it for me. Take care of yourselves. Be good to each other. All that, all that usual stuff. My my note is um, Open API 3.1 was officially announced uh, yesterday. Yeah. Um, it's actually out now. Um, this is a little unfortunate because not that many tools are ready for it yet. Um, but like, it's one of those really annoying chicken and egg things if so many tooling developers don't bother to support something until it's final, um, which means those release candidates last far too long because they haven't got enough feedback to be confident they can release the final yet. Um, so this time I'm hoping the tools will be very quick to upgrade. Um, I know Stoplight are working hard, Postman are working hard, Smartfair are working hard. Everyone's working hard to get onto OpenAPI 3.1. Um, where we'll probably see a bit less speed is some of the kind of random single, single author maintainer um, open source packages. Um, but hopefully uh, there's a bit of convergence and people stop maintaining, you know, 
150 different versions of the same little package and kind of come together to, to kind of get onto OpenAPI 3.1 together. Um, and we'll start to see the, the tooling mature and, and congregate that way. Um, but the fact that OpenAPI 3.1 is out now is brilliant because as well as adding some cool new stuff, it's got webhooks, that's great. Um, it also solves the JSON schema OpenAPI discrepancy where OpenAPI is a subset, superset, side set that adds some bits, removes some bits and changes some bits of JSON schema, which has plagued me for three years. I've had to, <laughs> I've got a little counter running that's just like number of days since I've had to explain that JSON schema and OpenAPI are different. Zero. <laughs> so we'll talk about that more in an upcoming episode, but I just wanted to give everyone the great news that OpenAPI 3.1 is out. It's final. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, can't wait to talk about that in another episode. And until then, we will see everyone later. Cheers. Take it easy, guys.